This is 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. All right, and we can get right into it. Um, so welcome listeners to another discussion um, brought to you by um, the Wired Podcast Hour with the Lewis Walker Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnic Relations. Um, only on 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. And I'm super excited for today's discussion because we have some members of the Lewis Walker um, staff that usually do a lot of behind the scenes work, but definitely should be uplifted and, and needed to be in this conversation today. And then we also have um, special guest and alumni and author, Juwan Howard, um, on the call with us today. And we're gonna be talking about um, Judas and the Black Messiah. As we know, that's been a, um, topic of conversation for a while now um, with the movie that released early last month. Um, and then we will get into what the Black Power Movement is, the history of it, and also the continued fight for civil rights um, in America today. So I'll leave our panelists to kind of do some more introductions about themselves. Shamante, Dr. Gus, you want to give a little brief blurb about who you are and what you do for the Institute? Okay, well, I guess I'll go next. I'm uh, Gus Calvert. I'm the program manager for the Lewis Walker Institute. Um, I'm excited about the position. I'm excited about the direction that we're in or the direction that we're going. Uh, we have an opportunity to, to touch a lot of people in many sectors of this community and the state and even the nation. So this is exciting work. It's never ending when you talk about um, racial, issues, when you talk about inclusion, and when you talk about equity, uh, when you talk about um, uplifting our people, uh, uplifting people, period. This is exciting work. Good morning. My name is Shamante Dickerson. I am the Administrative Assistant Senior at the Lewis Walker Institute. Uh, so my role and purpose is I, um, I'm called the glue of the office because I pretty much orchestrate and oversee how things come together. So where uh, Dr. Gus, Taylor, um, Dr. Wallace, and the other associate uh, directors on our board come up with the ideas, I kind of help uh, expound on those and bring them together so that we can produce the content and programming such as this in order to get it out to the public so we can connect only, not only with our community, uh, but connect with the students uh, which in the community in which we serve on campus, uh, but then also uh, figure out how that we can take some of that um, into research as well and be able to, you know, to still stay viable uh, within our community. So very proud to serve, glad to be on the discussion today, and hopefully everyone that's listening will have a, a great time and, you know, getting some insight about what we think about the topic today. Uh, my name is Jawan Howard. I am a graduate of Western Michigan. I'm an author of A Message to Black College Students. And uh, I'm currently an academic interventionist for Detroit Public Schools. Um, yeah, it's pretty good on my role, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, cool. So we can get into discussion. I'm glad our listeners got to know a little bit about our, our panels today. Dr. Wallace will be joining us a little bit later on, as, as our listeners know, um, her radiant energy. We'll definitely be on this call. Um, but we'll be talking about kind of our reflection on Judas and the Black Messiah. Did everyone get a chance to watch the film? I mean, I know Shamante did, uh, Jerwan or Dr. Gus, did you also get a chance? Yes, to watch? yes, yes, I did. 
So what were our like immediate thoughts? We can just kind of have an open discussion about it. I know I was really kind of uplifted, but a lo- also a little angry after watching the film. Um, so how are, how are you all feeling like when watching the film and then after kind of it was all finished, how are you feeling? I think as a, as a film or as a movie, it touched many areas. Uh, there were some, some points that were funny. There were some points that were happy. There were some points that were sad. There were points that made you angry. So because it touched all of those emotions, I, of course, then had to call it a good movie uh, in that regard. Um, sad in, there, in terms of realizing that the downfall of most movements in our history uh, has been a traitor. That's the only way I can, a turncoat, a, a, a Judas. Uh, you know, if you, if you go back to every revolution, uh, if you go back to Nat Turner, if you go back to Denmark Vesey, uh, you go back to Dr. King getting shot or stabbed, uh, uh, Malcolm X, uh, there's always someone who's willing to betray his people or her people uh, for some coins, you know, for 40 pieces of silver. So that's, that's, I guess, the realism, but that's the tragedy as well. Yeah, and, and, and to kind of piggyback off of that, it's, it's important for the viewers of that movie to realize that that is history, but not much has changed in regards to today. Every piece of that puzzle that was happening back then uh, that, that produced the Judas is still present in our communities today. You still have uh, the FBI around. You still have the media criminalizing black leaders and you still have black people who are willing to do pretty much anything for money or to be accepted by the general society. And, and I was it, I was surprised to see people in my age group uh, react to the movie the way that they did. Um, a lot of people didn't know the history and whatnot, but I think it's very important to, to realize that this is history, but not much has changed and this could easily be repeated. It may already be being re- repeated as we speak today uh, throughout our movements that we have right now. And I would, I would agree with that, uh, you know, knowing uh, what you were talking about, Juwan, about knowing the history. I mean, I, I, was, I was sharing with Taylor behind the scenes that growing up, I really didn't get the normal um, history from my parents or my elders uh, about uh, Black history or, or any, of the, any of our movements and different things. I've only learned what I've learned from that traditional Black History Month, or uh, or really have taken the time over you know the many years that that I've been here uh, in order to learn. So watching this film, it, it really just now kind of really opened me up to what the Black Panther Party was about more so than what I've heard, which was more so the violence uh, that. But I, I did see that it the the different things that they were trying to do uh, and you know building on what both of you said as far as you know somebody betraying the movement is how we continue to operate a little bit in society today if not a lot um and i agree that because of that that is still a detriment to our, our communities to you know forge a really good effort to come together there's always somebody trying to undermine which that shouldn't happen because we have to be all on the same accord in order to advance. And so um, it, it's been great 
um, learning the history. And that's what uh, Judas and the Black uh, Messiah did for me. You know, and I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to make the, 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 the next point as well. Um, you know, people ask, since this has happened in every movement, well, like, how do you stop a Judas from infiltrating your movement? And uh, I was having a discussion with my brother, and I think you have to view Judas as a behavior. I think the behavior or the willingness to undercut a collective progression for money or for advancement is Judas' behavior. And I think once we are ready to, or once we are able to realize that as a behavior, you can pinpoint it in pretty much people's everyday actions. The fact that we have hip hop artists who preach genocide uh, for uh, you know what I'm saying? They preach us killing one another for to get more money or to get signed by a record label. That's the Judas behavior. The, the fact that we have a politician who may or who who do certain things are detrimental to the collective for political advancement for money. That's the Judas behavior as well. And I think uh, there is no way to fully just cut out Judas from our community or from our movements. But once we begin to realize that it's a behavior and that it's the willingness to do anything for money or, or for advancement, even if that means uh, the collective is going to suffer. Then I think we'll be able to at least begin to uh, try to identify it before it gets to the point where it destroys our entire movements. That's a, that's a good point. I can't disagree with that. Um, it it was interesting for me. I I had a personal note uh, during that during the seventies, uh, during the sixties. I have an FBI file. I was part of COINTELPRO. I grew up in Muskegon Heights and, and started an organization called the Black Educational Movement. And we were patterned after the Black Action Movement here on Western Michigan University's campus. And we simply wanted uh, Black history courses. And the women or the young girls at our school at that time wanted to be able to wear pants. It was part of our dress code. The girls had to wear skirts and dresses. and we're in West Michigan. So, you know, the winters get kind of cold coming off that lake. So we picketed, went on strike. And then uh, we were also working with uh, Muskegon Public Schools and Mona Shores, uh, which is Northern Shores, uh, predominantly white suburbs of Muskegon. And all of a sudden, um, the FBI taps my phone and the phone of my uh, the vice president and the secretary. And later on, we also, I got a call that uh, I was to meet a, a revolutionary at the downtown motel. And this guy was just coming out of prison. Uh, and he was a white male. And I'm saying, okay, why would I wanna meet someone just coming out of prison? What are you going to tell me? I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to know you. Uh, I don't know you, so I don't trust you. Uh, and then, then, so I didn't do it. But I got on a bus to come back to Kalamazoo and this guy who I would have labeled a hippie got on the bus and the bus was half empty, but he sat next to me and he offered me some hats. I didn't take it. And uh, the reason I didn't take it that sixth sense went off and said, this doesn't seem right. So I didn't take it and then uh, he moved. And later on in the story, in 1990, 91, I got a letter to come to Chicago to Cook County and pick up a file 
that the uh, government, the FBI was releasing of the wiretaps that had been held on my phone. So I was keenly aware of um, the Judas and the priests and being a young guy who was influenced by the Black Panther Party. My oldest brother was a member of the Black Panther Party. And of course, we were in constant contact. He was a field marshal, so he was a recruiter. So he had a big influence on, on my thinking. So I knew that that happened and that happens and, and continues to happen today. 89.1 wider FM. And also, the story in uh, the professor at Ohio State in 2008 wrote a book about the Black Panther Party, and he ended up getting a felony uh, because he wrote a book on the Black Panther Party. It took him two years to get this felony removed off his record um, because he wrote this book. He had never committed any crime, had never went to court, had never went to jail, had never been convicted of anything. But on his record, he was labeled a felon and was going to be dismissed from the university because he had a felon. He had a felony. And again, he had to go through the Justice Department, had to go to the FBI. They couldn't tell him when he got it and how he got it and why he got it. They referred him to the Justice Department. They said they didn't know when, how, and why, but it was on his record. And the only thing they could conclude was he had written a book on the Black Panther Party, and this was 2008. So from 2008 to 2010, it took him two years to get that felony removed from his record. And the only thing he did was wrote a book. Wow. So what was he charged with? Like, what was the charges? It, it, it didn't say. It, it just listed him, just listed him at uh, uh, listed a felony. So he That's just crazy. pretty much had a plant. They planted this on his record. That was it. He never yeah. was in front of a judge or. Nep. Wow. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Wow, it, just had, it just pops up as a felony. You have a felony. And it doesn't say what. And you know, the, the other thing about the Black Panther Party, 70% uh, of the information written on the Black Panther Party is false that it was planted by the FBI, that the FBI or one of their sources or someone, one of their informants, someone that they were paid to conspire with, uh, paid to write their story. Why do you think the FBI and you know Hoover, why do you think they were so, I guess, triggered by the Black Panther Party? Or what do you think their goal was like for that? Because as we see, the government taking down leaders like Malcolm X and Martin and Fred Hampton, and there, and there's always going to be a revolution. You know what I'm saying? If you continue to raise the raise the resistance, you're gonna raise the level of the movement. So, what do you think they're? I I don't even know how to like phrase this question, but what do you think their outcome was? Even if you know the Messiah is always going to rise. Like, what, what do you think their thinking is in that, in that sense? You, 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 that's, that's a question for everyone or, or Dr. Gus? No, oh, it's for everyone. The whole conversation is oh. for everyone. Oh, okay. Mm. Gotcha. No, I, I think they, the, the goal is to kill the black Messiah or to anybody who will raise the consciousness of the overall collective uh, has to go because once the consciousness of everyone knows the collective is, is raised to a certain level, 
they'll begin to realize the condition that they are under is just flat out unacceptable. And the current power structure approves of these conditions. So therefore, in order for things to stay the way they are, uh, certain leaders cannot have the influence that they have over the people. So they have to go. So I think, yeah, that's their main goal is to kill them off and push that message further along down the road as they can. One of the things from the film that struck me um, was that, again, when you think, you, you think the term Black Panther, and if you don't know what the background of the organization was, such as myself, I would have never known that he actually was able to pull together uh, different communities of color, as well as honestly, you know, white people mm -hmm. to come into the fold because they were still being oppressed for one reason or another or been forgotten. And he just wanted to have everybody just up, uplift themselves. Um, you know, uh, bringing in that particular group, I think it was more so that they had, they felt like they weren't being heard. Um, so, you know, to empower them as well to become allies across the city so that they, everyone could prosper basically kind of at the same time. So it's funny that when you talk with different people and they always say, oh, well, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But every time you look around, there's a, a, a different way that seems to infiltrate as the Judas or, uh, or policy or something of that nature that at that point is going to start to try to tear down what was just built or try to interfere with what they want to have built. So it's almost a double standard. You, you say you want us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and do what you're supposed to do for your own communities versus relying on the government or the city. But at the same time, you really don't want that because after you see the power in it, the people that are in power uh, tend to get scared and fearful and to remain in power, they wanna destroy it. Yep. And so that's what you know I continue to see um, that's happening even today. Definitely agree with that. Uh, and, I, and I was doing some research too. Uh, so a lot of the gangs that we have in uh, the community today, they weren't, the way they are right now is not what they were intended to be. I know I'll use CRIP for an example. CRIP stands for Community Progress, or no, Community Revolution and Progress. And BLOOD stands for Brotherly Love Overrides and Overcomes Destruction. So a lot of these gangs and groups that we have today started off as a supposed to be like community progressive movements. I think over time, the same thing happened with the Black Panther Party or whatever the movement, it got infiltrated as well and it became something completely different. But I, I think Fred Hampton saw the power in unifying all of these things to understand we all have kind of like one common enemy. And once we all come together and realize that we can move further together. Yeah, what do you think about the Rainbow Coalition Hampton was trying to start? That was really powerful. I know for me in the movie, especially as you know, like everything I'm trying to do at Western, because um, some leaders don't believe that we should come together and unify, but Hampton did. So what do you all think about like the Rainbow Coalition? I think Hampton was correct. Uh, if, you think if, if you think about uh, Black power, the word really means equity. You know, the whole struggle talks about equity, um, dividing the power, dividing the, the wealth. There was an economic component. And the reason he was able to talk to uh, the, the, the whites, the reason he was able to talk to uh, the brown folks, the Brown Beret in LA worked, which was East LA, 
were in partnership with the Black Panther Party because they were being brutalized uh, by the police, just as the uh, Black community was being involved. Uh, if you listen to the other issues of poverty, poverty didn't just stick to the Black community. You know, the, those white folks in the poor communities were also being harmed. So that's why he was able to strike a chord that, that resonated with more than one group. Uh, that's powerful. And that's why he was so dangerous, as Juwan said. That's why J. Edgar Hoover called him, called the Black Panther Party the number one threat to America in the country, the number one threat. An organization can go against the military, the military industrial complex and bring it down. So that means it would take a, a messiah, take someone like a Fred Hampton who could unite black people, white people, Asian people, Jews, uh, everybody. He could bring everybody together, regardless of color, regardless of race and ethnicity. That means that's a powerful person. And that's a danger to the establishment because the, the establishment's job is to protect the establishment. That's the FBI's job. Dr. Gus, I think you're bringing up a powerful point because, and I think that this also speaks to the whole Judas mentality, because when you're looking at people's vulnerabilities, then that's exactly the place that can either unify them or cause them to separate. And I think that that's exactly what we saw um, in terms of, of the experiences you know, with William, with, with his character in, in the film, because, and in reality, he didn't want to go to jail. He was poor. He didn't have other outlets or alternatives. All he knew was to boost cars or that, or that's, that's all he knew or, you know, how to swindle people. And so if that's your skill set, and someone says, okay, I'm going to give you money, which you need. I'm going to give you a car, which gives you the status that you have not earned, but that he wanted. Right. And then in order to get out, I'm going to give you a gas station, which means I've given you a living. And so I think that the, the challenge that we have to consider is that that precisely speaks to the weaknesses that sometimes makes individuals vulnerable to succumbing to the whole Judas mentality. And, and I think that that's unfortunately what we see happening today and, and precisely why um, the Rainbow Co Coalition was such a threat and why it continues to be such a threat. Like, why do you think that we saw in the most recent elections and the most recent years, why the very groups that if they came together, could overthrow and overcome what our government is currently doing to our society. But instead, let's pit poor, ignorant um, white people against that evil other, that evil other black people, yes. immigrants, yes. whomever. Let's pit them against each other. So that way you don't have to focus on the fact that you still don't have health insurance. You don't have to focus on the fact that in your communities, you still don't have jobs. You don't have to focus on the fact that you still have rampant rates of drug addiction in, your, in, in, in those poor white 
community. So it's something that we need to consider. I, and that and that was one of my issues with the movie too. I think it wanted us to sympathize and empathize with the fact that someone traded. I think, uh, and I mean, I, I do consider his background, his, his situation and everything as to why he made the decision that he made. But I think that it truly made people uh, empathize with him. And I just think his behavior was unacceptable. Um, after a while, he knew the Black Panther Party was not bad. and He knew the FBI was not good. And yet he still chose to do whatever it was that he was doing, um, the traitor acts and whatnot, which eventually got people killed and unjustly and whatnot. I think that movie truly made people empathize with the traitor more so than we actually should in order to continue to push forward in our current times. What do y'all think about that? Yeah, when my friend and I were watching the movie, like when it first came out, we just didn't understand why he didn't go to jail. Like we were like, you know, okay, sure, they're offering you like this freedom or whatever. But then once you realize it's not what you thought it was, and once you started like analyzing every time the FBI agent was asking you to draw four plans, like you knew what was going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And and you could see through the, you know, portrayed through the film that once he started to realize exactly like Juan said, um, that the, the party wasn't necessarily as big of a threat as Hoover and the FBI was making them seem like, why didn't he just say, you know what, take me to jail? I mean, probably he's going to get like a worse sentence because the FBI is the FBI, but like, we were just wondering like, why didn't he just go to jail at that point? Like he was getting, he was helping get all these people killed. And I, I don't know, I'll leave it to the rest of you, but I know I was, I didn't understand why he didn't just go to jail at that point and why he continued to fight just to end up to get a gas station. But, what? but, but you know what, Taylor, I, I would have to say, and I'm not trying to justify him because I thought what his behavior was reprehensible and it was disgusting and, and there, uh, but cowardice and fear can do a lot. And then you think about this fact, y'all, he's still younger than you. Both of y'all are older than him when he was making these decisions. And so if you're talking about somebody that, you know, I mean, you're, you're talking, or, or he's your age, roughly. And, and I think that growth, maturity, y'all, I mean, Taylor, Jawan, y'all are at a whole other level when you compare the thought process and the, uh, and the awareness that y'all possess compared to a lot of other people your age. There are a lot of folks your age that all they want is what they want. It's what's best for them. And I, I think that, that that in and of itself speaks volumes for me. Doesn't make, doesn't make it excusable. Doesn't make it an acceptable behavior. Doesn't make me think that he was any more of a Judas or any more of a, a coward than he was. But I, but I think we have to still put that into context. And it was so confusing because he helped rebuild the headquarters like after they had bonded. And then I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, maybe he's, he's on the come up. No. And then I just, <laughs> from that point on for the rest of the movie, I was like, what, what's the point now? Like, what are you trying to get to? And I guess that speaks to the, to the fear, but go ahead. I think for me, I, I, it became, I saw that it, for him, as far as the defense of him, it was a them or me attitude. He was like, oh my goodness, it, either I got to do, either I'm going down or they're going to go down. Because as you notice, he was like that 
that kind of like that snake that always slipped out the back door when it was about to go down. He figured out right. a way to get out of there. And so, you know, that that drove a lot of his mentality. But one of the things that that they did was they continued to add more to his responsibility as he continued to be this Judas. They just kept adding, like, do this. Now, he thought he was done once Fred went to jail. He thought he didn't have to do anything else because he thought that that was the end game. He got convicted. It wasn't on him at that point that Fred was on appeal and he had to come out. And as far as him rebuilding the, the, the center at that point, Fred really wasn't technically a part of that because Fred was locked up. So maybe the party, maybe his thought process was the party can take a different direction or at least the person that they wanted to get, they got. So now let's move forward. So he had a dilemma the entire time. And I think, you know, his absolute frustration was, you know, when, when we got to the part where he need, they needed the blueprint of Fred's home. And he's just like, are you kidding? I, I've done everything that you needed me to do. And you're going to kill this dude now. This is crazy. So he, 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 you know, it doesn't excuse. And like Juwan was saying, we, we almost become sympathetic for him. But I, I understand what you're saying, Taylor, that when... <laughs> How come he just doesn't say, you know, I'm not doing it. But notice that the agent never reduced his time. He never said, okay, well, in exchange for what you've done, he still brought up that 18 months for the car and that uh, five years for impersonating the officer. He never said there would be any reduction for the work that he's already done. So that was the thing I think that, that kind of was in his face the entire time yeah. while he was trying to make a decision to decide, man, is it them or is it me? Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, I think he he realized he was dancing with the devil from the beginning, and it just got deeper and deeper into it. So at what point um, would he realize that? And also, uh, his background or his conditions, I think that should have been more of a driving force for him being loyal to the Black Panther Party. He was a poor, uh, he's poor, he's Black. He's seen the conditions of his community, and he knows what the Black Panthers are trying to do to overturn those conditions. Yet, he flips and joins the other the other side that will continue to support these conditions that him and his community are in. I think I just viewed a different way. Just, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, but I don't know. I think the fact that he was directly in those positions or seeing the harsh, uh, the harshness of the ghettos of Chicago, that would make him want to be more supportive of the Black Panther Party, especially being side by side by someone as great as Fred Hampton. I don't know. I just don't get it. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I I just don't get it. I think I think he was driven by fear. I think Dr. Wallace hit uh, hit a key point because he he knew he was pretty much a dead man one way or the other. Because if the uh, if Fred Hampton, if the Black Panther Party or any of the gangs had realized that he was the traitor, he was going to get the boil water treatment as well he was going to get beat down or they was going to find him in the bottom of uh, Lake Michigan or the Chicago River. So he, he knew on that instance, he was going to be killed. On the other instance, he didn't want to go to jail for five years for, for impersonating an officer plus 18 months for the cop. So he's looking at close to seven. So he, caught, he put himself in, a, an, in between a rock and a hard place and, and I think that's what kept driving. 89.1 wider FM. And we also have to remember um, the intelligence 
when I say the intelligence, um, I'm talking about like the, the behavior analysts that mm -hmm. are working for the FBI. They're good at what they do. They know exactly what personalities and personality types and types of people that they need to look for that would fall into line with their fall into um, alignment with their plan. Who would go with what they would say? They knew there were certain personalities that they couldn't reach out to and offer this deal and think that it was going to happen. Yes. But he was the kind of character. They're like, you know what? You're just disengaged enough from your community because honestly, he could have been a Black Panther months before. He wasn't at Malcolm X College. Like he wasn't at some of the other places where any of the other organizations that were doing something uplifting for the community were. He wasn't a part of that network. So I also think that we, we can't, um, we also can't deny the fact that those who chose him to be in this position were good at what they did. They knew exactly who to reach out to and how to, and how to speak to his greatest need, his greatest fear and his greatest desires in order to get him to play along. Great point. That's, yeah, that's a really, really good point. And most of these conversations around black progression always kind of dwindle down to individualism versus collectivism mm -hmm. and just the and ideals that, that come along with each one. The individualism um, you do for yourself and everybody else, whatever is me or them, but the collectivism side of us, which is what we truly, truly need, the unity side of us, uh, it doesn't allow us to do certain things based off the idea of what that action will do to the collective. And uh, this was a classic example of that throughout the movie, I think. And, and that was the danger to uh, J. Edgar Hoover. You know, the Black Panther Party was formed on, on the theories of Mao Zedong and, and the Red Book. And Chairman Mao talked about socialism. He talked about women as holding up half of the sky. So women held up half, men held up other half. Then the leadership of the Black Panther Party was equally split between men and women. It wasn't uh, a male-dominated society. It wasn't that at all. It was split equally. The power, the issues that they were about were split, were shared. It was about the collective, which he said represented a communistic point of view. The other was on capitalism, the, 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 the fall of capitalism, the harm of capitalism, they had them reading Des Capital, and, and it spoke to the evils of capitalism, why it was going to bring down America. And again, the establishment didn't want people reading those books and, and espousing that philosophy. So they were looking at, let's tear them down. And the only way we can do it is find a, find a Judas, play on someone who has, who's acceptable to the fear who's acceptable to the weakness, who will fall for the 40 pieces of silver. I think we've been having a deep and necessary conversation um, on the film and the Black Power Movement and kind of what that means today, but kind of wrapping it full circle, what advice would you have for the, you know, the upcoming generation of leaders and, you know, lobbyists and policymakers, lawyers, doctors, you know, all of the above, what advice would you have for them, you know, in, in the reflection discussion we've had today about the 70s um, 
what advice do you have for them to keep kind of pushing forward, creating this this good good trouble type of thing we've been having for the year? I, I think two, I think two things. Uh, I think one is coalition building. I think the the issues are universal, and I think you have to say anyone who's willing to work toward the issues that are best for the collective that are in line with the movement that's what we should support and i think Jawan identified early looking at the behavior of the judas if you're a leader then you need to pay attention to the people around you and their behaviors and you need to deal with someone if they show that behavior that's not uh, working in the best interest of the group you need to say oh okay let's look at what's in the what's in the best interest of the group let's not look at what's it what's in the best interest of the individual so i think working toward a coalition makes sense it makes a lot of sense to me defining universal issues it makes a lot of sense to me uh, i would say History is a weapon. You study the past leaders, past movements, and you figure out, because uh, no movement was perfect, you figure out where they may have had a mishap or what they could have done differently, and you build on to that. I think oftentimes, um, our leaders in my generation, we jumped the gun without studying the people that have come before us. And that could save us a lot of time, energy, and uh, a lot of resources as well. So study history and learn about these past movements and what went wrong with them and see the connections between those times and these times. And also understand there's a lot of honor in, uh, in, in doing this fight. Um, everybody isn't uh, built for it. So the ones that are, um, it's, it's truly an honor to be able to carry the baton of the Marcus Garveys, the Malcolm X, the Sultan McClarks, uh, the Dr. Barber C. Sizemore, um, the Martin Luther King. There's a lot of honor in this uh, and you should definitely treat it as such. Uh, don't let anybody tell you that what you're doing or the fight for this is, is over or things are resolved in any way. Um, it's, it's a lot of work to do still and our generation has to be the one that, do it, that does it. I think that uh, collaboration is key uh, because the fight cannot be won alone. So um, as some of the, the new student leaders or young advocates come up that they need to make sure that again, they take into consideration uh, different values, but like uh, that Dr. Gus was talking about, you know, making sure everything comes together and what in having common ground with other groups or other individuals. And then what Juwan was saying um, about making sure that you do your homework, because he kind of took the words right out of my mouth, because that's what I was going to say as well. But collaborating with others to try to move the, the, um, the, the commitments or the, the movement forward for what you're fighting for is going to be key because you're going to need other people to hold you up so that you can kind of get there without, you know, the burnout and basically hitting brick walls alone where you have other people to collaborate with and come together to figure out a solution. You know, one other thought, and we have to make sure that we continue to look at these situations through our eyes. We can't look at them through someone else's eyes. What's best for, I'll say the black community is not necessarily what's best for the white community. We have to look at it through our eyes. 
We can't lose sight on that. We can't let anyone else define our narrative. We have to write our own story. So we have to be clear. And that was one thing that, that the Black Panthers aren't giving credit for. They had a 10 point plan that they modified along the way. And it was very clear what their goals were and what their objectives were. Whether we agree with them or not, there was some clear, a clear plan. And I think that's what we have to do as well make sure that we align ourselves with people who think like us and that we clearly define what we're doing, what is the movement for, what's our purpose, and don't let anyone else tell our story. I think it's also important to remember that there's no one way to be committed to the yes. movement. Correct, um, yes. Because you're gonna have some people that are gonna have to make the impact and the difference and the change from within the systems that we see as broken, because sometimes that's how you get the information that you need. That's how you get your intel. That's how you get your place at the table. That's how you get those opportunities to be able to, to influence. And then other times you have to have those, those disruptors from the outside that are, are going to you know take that stand that might be the leaders from the outside looking in, but are still influencing the conversations that are happening on the inside. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge and value that there's several ways to make an impact. It's not just one way, but there's several pathways. And so I would just encourage, um, I would encourage people to, you know, as, as Gus was saying, look at yourself and from within, like what feels not so much comfortable or safe, but what is your, what is your activist personality? because every activist has different ways of doing things. And so I would just encourage folks to consider their activist personality and maneuver that way. I think these were great um, final last thoughts as we're wrapping up um, our podcast here. Thank you to all of our listeners tuning in to the Wired podcast. Just another awesome discussion hosted by the Lewis Walker Institute in collaboration with WIDR Kalamazoo. Um, thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you all to our amazing panelists. Um, and hopefully you got to see how amazing the Lewis Walker, some people on the Lewis Walker staff are. Um, and then also we're glad that we got to have Jawan Howard um, on a discussion finally. Um, and we're hoping that you all can join us again for some more conversations.